a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. She testified that we were at home. The state's attorney kept asking her the same thing over and over, so there's never a time during the day, whether it was in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening, that he never left your sight. Did he ever want the arrest for a murder of William Moore, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Before I begin today's episode about our Season 7 case, I need to share a quick update with you about our Season 6 case. For those of you who don't know, in Season 6 we investigated the murder of Houston man Jim Milgar. Jim's wife Sandra was convicted of his murder in 2017, and I personally believe wholeheartedly that Sandy Melgar is innocent. Throughout the course of Season 6, Sandy's defense team and the Harris County DA's office were battling back and forth, submitting appeals briefs to the 14th Court of Criminal Appeals. Sandy's attorneys, McAnalls and Seacrest, requested oral arguments in the appeal, meaning that they wanted the opportunity to present their case in person to a panel of judges. On Tuesday of this week, the court issued a notice that they will not be permitting oral arguments on the matter. Even though only a very small percentage of cases are granted oral arguments, this still comes as a bit of a blow. I think that we all expected, at least I can say that I expected, the court to allow the oral arguments given the complexity of the points of error raised by the defense. Most notably, the claim that the jury wrongfully convicted Sandy based on legally insufficient evidence. Nonetheless, the court's ruling is the court's ruling. The notice states that the case is scheduled for submission without oral arguments on the briefs and the record on Tuesday, October 22nd. What this means is that the three-panel judge will receive the documents for review in about six weeks. They will then make a decision based solely on the trial transcripts and the briefs that were written and submitted by both the prosecution and defense. To be clear, it's my understanding that we will not be getting a decision on October 22nd. That's only the day that the panel of judges will receive the file. I'll keep you posted with any updates as they become available. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. 
But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. Jamie Snow was arrested for Bill Little's murder on September 29, 1999, about eight and a half years after the fact. And he was actually arrested in Akron, Ohio. About six weeks earlier, his estranged wife, Tammy, had been subpoenaed to testify in front of a grand jury. After an eight-year investigation, the McLean County DA's office was finally ready to seek an indictment against Jamie. He and Tammy were separated at the time. Jamie had a new girlfriend and was living in Florida, and Tammy was back in Bloomington. When Jamie had called his wife to speak to his kids, Tammy let him know that the grand jury was meeting to indict him, and Jamie ran. All the way to Ohio. Jamie had had enough dealings with the police in Bloomington to know that if the grand jury was meeting, he was going to be charged with Bill's murder. He wasn't about to stick around and wait to be picked up. And then when he got to Ohio, he began going by an assumed name. He told everyone that he met in Akron that his name was David Harrison. Surely the Bloomington Police Department would never find him in a different state operating under an alias. Well, at least that's what Jamie thought. Unfortunately for him, someone called in a tip, and it didn't take long for him to be arrested. Jamie provided the local officers with his false name, and he was asked to roll up a pant leg to check for an identifying tattoo, and Jamie ran again. He was eventually caught and arrested, and prosecuting attorney Tina Griffin and Detective Dan Katz made the trip to Ohio to interview him. This is that interview from 1999 on the day that Jamie was arrested. And sheriff's office in Akron, Ohio. This is reference to case number 91002150, William Little Homicide. person being interviewed is Jamie Snow. The time is 12.15 a.m. September 29, 1999. Jamie, you gonna take these off or not? I'm sorry. Yeah, you 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 be all right to take them off? Yeah, man, what do you want to do? No problem. Just keep going. Yeah. 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 Uh, before we get started, I just need to let you know a couple things. One, this interview is being tape recorded. Um, two, I have to read you what is commonly referred to as your Miranda warnings because you are in custody. Jamie, I'd like to know what I'm being charged with first. Well, I will tell you as soon as I'm reading your Miranda warnings. Jamie, you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yeah. Anything you say can will be used against you in court of law. Do you understand that? Yeah. 
You have the right to talk to the lawyer and have him question. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. if, if you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, want to be appointed to represent you before any question if you wish. Do you understand that? Yeah. You can decide at any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. Do you understand that? Mm -hmm. Jamie, do you understand each of these rights I just explained to you? Yeah. Jamie, you have these rights in mind. Do you wish to talk to me about why you're here today? Well, yeah, I'd sure like to know what I've been arrested for. Okay, no problem. Jamie, you know that for a while, the Bloomington Police Department has been conducting an investigation in the shooting that took place March 31st, 1991 in Bloomington, Illinois. You're aware of that, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And you also are aware that in, that in that investigation, your names came up and we've been investigating the possibility of you being involved in that crime. You know that to be true too, is that correct? Yeah. Jamie, we have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Little, who was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. Well, and that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm here. Well, then now you don't know what to talk about, man. If you've got a warrant for my arrest warrant, then that's it. Jamie, there's a lot to talk about. No, there's you, not. You know that. No, there's not. Let's talk about the lie detector test that I passed, man. Let's talk about that. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's okay. talk about it. How many lie detector tests did you take, James? I don't remember. You took two. Okay. Okay. The first one was inconclusive. You know that. I, no, I didn't Say, know that. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll share it with you. The second one? Uh, I passed. Who told I mean, you? Who told you that? What do you, what do you mean you told me? Who, who told you you passed? Well, uh... The polygrapher told me I passed. Charlie Crow told me I passed. I mean, you know. Well. And you know, my, my attorney at the time, you know, we were the state's attorney now and wherever. Mm -hmm. Right. He was right there too, so he told me. Well, unfortunately, things go crazy, Jamie. You didn't really pass that test. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. For an example, do you remember any questions they asked you? Of course. Well, I'm done. I, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore without an attorney, man. Okay. You know. Well, that, that's your option. Okay. Yeah. Um, you got a warrant for me, then we'll go out. I'll see you in court. Okay. okay. Jamie, before uh, this interview is terminated, because you're requesting an attorney, I just want to let you know the reason why we're here was to afford you the opportunity to explain what happened. Well, I'd like what afford me an opportunity? But. You afford know, me an opportunity, is that what you're saying? Afford me an opportunity? But since... I don't you, even have a clue, man. I don't even know. And I think you know that, really. I think since, you know that. Since you requested an attorney, okay. we cannot talk to you or carry this interview any further. You know that. That's right. You know what your rights are. That's right. You wasted your time. No, I don't think I wasted my time. I, I do. Before, uh, what I want you to do you had a car blanche here to ask me anything you wanted to today. You had a car blanche to ask me anything. I would, I would have told you what the investigations revealed, what's happened. I would have told you anything. You, you, you asked one aspect of it. You asked one aspect of it, and that was it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm sure you know, you're I, curious. I think you're lying to me. I think uh, you're lying to me well, because, is because Charlie Crow told me I passed it, the polygrapher right there, you know, your, your state, Illinois State Police, whatever, now you're trying to say, I failed it. 
all, all this time. And and you know, you, know, you want you want to know what happened on that? Yeah. One of the questions they asked you, Jamie, did you shoot the gas station attendant March thirty first, nineteen ninety four? Do you know who you were on March 31st, 1994? I'm no more questions. Well, that's fine. The date was wrong. And when I asked the polygraph examiner if a person could pass the test if the date was wrong. And what was the question again? Ask, say it again. I can tell you exactly what the question is. I have it right here. On March 31st, 1994, did you rob the car station in Empire Limited in Wilmington? No. That's the truth. You would have passed that question. Because you didn't rob the gas station on March 31st, 1994. Did you shoot William Little? No. No, you wouldn't have shot William Little. He was already dead March 31st, 1994. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, when I talked to the polygraph examiner, I asked him, and he says, you know what, he said, to the person who doesn't commit a crime, the dates don't matter. Because they're going to focus in, did I ever shoot somebody? But the person who has committed crimes in the past, especially crimes similar, like in armed robberies, they're going to think, where was I, March 31st, 1994? Well, hell, I couldn't do it. I don't know, but I don't think you were. That's good. I can't believe it, man. That's, that's well, why would I lie? Why would I have whatever, a reason to lie? So take, anyway, I can take a thousand okay. of them, and I'll pass every one of them. Uh, so anyway, you know, Jamie. Whatever. I'm done. What I want to tell you, I'll stay in town as long as you want me to. You to take some time to think about it. If you want to talk, you have to, to, you about, have to get a message to me. There, there, there's nothing to think about. I don't know anything about it, man. I didn't have anything to do with it. What do you want me to say? Yeah. We'll, we'll get you. Just stay here, man. We'll get you uh, taken back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Basically, it says in the circuit clerk of the 11th Judicial Circuit in Clayton County, Illinois, the people of the state of Illinois versus James Christopher Snow, which is a defendant, case number 99CF1016, warrant of arrest. To all peace officers of the state of Illinois, you are hereby commanded to arrest James Christopher Snow and bring said person without unnecessary delay before uh, Donald Bernardi, judge of the circuit clerk, excuse me, of the Circuit Court of the 11th Judicial Circuit in Plain County, the courtroom usually occupied by him in the Law and Justice Center in the City of Bloomington, or if he is absent or unable to act before the nearest or most accessible court in said county, the answer to the charge made against said person for the offenses of count one, two, and three, first degree murder, and holds said person to bail. The amount of bail is held without bond. The issue at Bloomington, McLean County, Illinois, this 22nd day of September, 1999. The Honorable Judge uh, Donald Bernardi signed it, and then it's just some identification for you, which I probably should ask you. You are not, I want to make sure I get this right, you haven't legally changed your name to David William no. Harrison? Okay. Who is David Harrison? Well, you have to open that test, my turn. Yeah. 
Those are questions you have to ask my attorney. I did tell you I don't want to answer any more questions. Yeah. Because Mr. Harrison, I'm just definitely trying to answer me questions after I told you not. I didn't want to answer no. any more questions. I'm just telling you, my, we're not my asking you any more questions. So you said you. I'm here. We're not asking any more questions. Okay. okay. Oh, great. Right. We're not asking more questions. Rick already told you we're going to be in town for a little while longer. You want to think about this and think about whether or not you want to talk to us. Obviously, you know you have to recontact us if you want to talk to us and you guys for your turn. The only reason I'm here and come along with this and let me know that other people are being arrested also is because this is the opportunity. You want to take it. You can think about it and not ask any questions and I want a response. What do you think about I don't it? understand what you're saying. I have opportunity for what? This is a death penalty case. Well, you know, that, I, I didn't do it, you know, and, and, and you're wrong, and, and you're wrong. You know, you, you guys have pursued me and, and, and tried to put this off on me for, you know, how, however long, you know, and I, and I didn't have nothing to do with it, and I don't know anything about it. So, you know, if we got to go to trial, then we go to trial, win or lose. I know I didn't do it, you know, and, and, and that's it. That's, that's the bottom line. So there's really, that's, what's the opportunity? Opportunity for what? To avoid a death penalty. So that's well, all we got to say. Whatever. That's it. That's, that's all we have to say. I'll see you in court. This interview is concluded. 1227. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. To say that Jamie was uncooperative with police would be an understatement. And that may be something that's a bit difficult for us to empathize with. Most of us, you and me, we live in a world where we believe that, for the most part, we can trust the police. Now, hopefully, all of you listening would be smart enough to ask for a lawyer immediately if you're ever brought in for questioning. But I doubt very much that most of you would run from the cops, hide in an attic, flee the state if you know that they're looking for you, or hide under a house. I want to believe that if I take all of the necessary precautions, like immediately evoking my right to an attorney, then the issue will eventually get resolved. I'm not going to make it worse by fleeing the police. Jamie, on the other hand, has an inherent distrust for law enforcement, which is partially due to things like being told that if he passed a polygraph test, he would be cleared, and then five years later being arrested for that same crime, and then being told that he actually failed the polygraph test. Last week, I told you that the fact that the polygrapher misspoke during Jamie's polygraph would come into play later. And this is how. In one of the three relevant questions asked of Jamie during his 1994 voluntary polygraph examination, the examiner asked him if, quote, On March 31, 1994, did you rob the Clark Station at Empire and Linden in Bloomington? Jamie answered no, and the examiner detected no signs of deception. Detective Katz then, five years later, uses this... I'll say misstatement, but really, for all we know, it could just be a typo on the report. But he uses that one misstatement to invalidate the entire exam. His theory being that Jamie noticed the polygrapher said 1994 instead of 1991, and therefore was able to respond truthfully that he didn't rob the Clark Station on that date. The issue here, and it's really only an issue if you put a lot of stock into polygraphs, 
But the issue is that Jamie also answered no to the other relevant questions. Most importantly, he was asked point blank, did you shoot William Little? No dates, no qualifying statements, no little details that could have been misstated. Just the simple question, did you shoot William Little? Jamie answered no, and the examiner concluded, quote, this subject was truthful to the above questions, end quote. We can argue back and forth until we're blue in the face about the reliability of polygraphs. I tend to swing back and forth myself on the issue. I think that on their face, polygraphs are pretty reliable. But at the same time, there are a lot of factors that can influence the results, including operator error. But the point is that in the 90s, the Bloomington PD did consider them reliable. At that time, they regularly used them to rule suspects in or out. They also administered them to witnesses. They used them all the time. And the bottom line is that the only thing that I really learned from Jamie Snow's police interview is that Detective Katz had blinders on. He was dead set on Jamie Snow. Come hell or high water, Jamie was going to be his guy. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that Jamie isn't the guy. I haven't reached a conclusion on that yet. But it is very obvious that the matter was settled for Katz. And he was not going to be convinced otherwise. And I can almost guarantee you that if Jamie had failed that polygraph, the mix-up of the years wouldn't have been of any concern. Jamie was convicted for one of two reasons. Either because he spent eight years bragging about killing Bill to everyone he came into contact with, fellow inmates, acquaintances, and just random people from around town, Or, he was convicted because a whole lot of people lied about Jamie confessing to them. It's a case built almost entirely on hearsay. And two weeks ago, we heard from one of the people who claimed to have heard Jamie making incriminating statements, Bill Jesse. Jesse said a lot of things. He says he's known Jamie since they were little kids. Bill Little and Jamie used to drink at the same bars. Everyone in town was giving Jamie the cold shoulder because they all knew that he had killed Bill. And he even told a story about getting into a fist fight with Jamie over Little's murder. When I brought this up to Jamie, I was actually surprised by his response. I had assumed that I would get a different version of events from Jamie, but I didn't expect him to say that he had no idea who Bill Jesse even is. And then that conversation led me to ask Jamie about putting up with all the rumors going around town about him. And he told me that I should take a close look at his record and the documents in his file. As it turns out... Jamie was only living in Bloomington for a few weeks after Bill's murder in 91. And those were the three weeks when there was a composite sketch distributed around town that looked nothing like him. And Martinez and Gutierrez had both picked the same man out of a lineup. A man that wasn't Jamie Snow. So I was wondering how many people could have really been talking about Jamie being the killer at that point. Jamie, did you have any any connection at all to Bill Little? Did you know who he was? I did not first time I'd ever heard his name was, was uh, you know, when, when the news came out about his murder. When you saw him in the news, did you, did you recognize him? You know, we had, a, we had a guy on the program last week named Bill Jesse that, that claimed that you guys were, were probably hanging out in the same bars. No, I, I didn't recognize him, and I, I, I can't imagine we were hanging out in the same bars. I mean, I, I, I'm not positive, but I think he was five, six, seven years younger than me. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I think he was like 
18. I don't think he was probably in the bars at the time. So, yeah, I thought that was strange too because he was 18 and the drinking age then was was 21. Yeah, so I don't know if he was there underage, but you know, while we're on the on the topic, I want to talk to you a little bit about this guy Bill Jesse. So he was a guy we had. Uh, we played an interview from him in '99 where he told police that that you were, you know, that that everyone in town knew you did it. And that, you know, everybody was giving you the cold shoulder and that the you you and him actually got into a physical altercation over Bill's murder at some point. Do you recall ever getting into an altercation with, with Bill Jesse? No, that, that, that never happened. And, and uh, I had told, I think I told you, I, you know, I, if you get a chance to talk to him again and ask him, you know, where, where it happened and, and uh, did I win or lose? I'd like to know that. Do you even know who he is? No, I, I don't know who he is. I I did know uh, uh, a guy named Wes Jesse, who was was. Uh, I did know somebody named Wes Jesse. I don't know if that's the same family or not. But I I I never, you know, I never knew some somebody named Bill Jesse, and I never got in a fight with with anybody by that name. So, did you ever get into a fight with anyone over over Bill's murder? I mean, what? It sounds like there was all these rumors running running around town. I mean, was it the way he described it, where you know every time you walked into a bar, everybody you know was was accusing you of killing Bill? No, no. I I had one confrontation with one person ever, and that was um, Danny Hartley. Was the only person I ever had a confrontation with. Nobody ever. Gave me the cold shoulder, or con- confronted me, or anything along those lines. It never happened. So when I was going through your timeline, you know, because Dandy told us about that confrontation, and then when I heard my first thought when I was listening to Bill Jesse's police interview was that that you know he's probably telling the truth to the point of because he's, he's saying that you're telling people like you know they don't have shit on me, they're not going to arrest me, and. I was thinking this is like a matter of perspective, right? So he thinks you did it. So when he hears you say they don't have shit on me, you're saying I'm getting away with it. Whereas you who are saying you're innocent when you say he doesn't have shit on, they don't have shit on me. It's because I didn't do it because you didn't do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But was that, was it accurate? What he was describing, which was the fact that you were, you were, you were, you were dealing with these rumors and you were being, I don't know if harass is the right word, but but everywhere you went, everybody thought you killed Bill. No, no, I wasn't being harassed, and and people were not confronting me. And like I said, the only person that ever said anything to me about Bill Little and being involved in the case was Danny Hartley. Nobody else ever said a word to me about it. Uh, there was no cold shoulder. There was no confrontations. None of that was going on from from anyone and, and and like I had told you you know we we were in and out of Bloomington we really weren't living in Bloomington all that long you know 5 months 6 7 months here you know 6 7 8 months there it just wasn't that wasn't going on it just wasn't well that when I was l- looking at your timeline as you know after we spoke last week and you were talking about when you were arrested for the Freedom Oil case and you know how long you went to jail and the, what you did after that I mean, from from ninety one, from April of ninety one until you were arrested in nineteen ninety nine, this Bill Jesse guy made it sound like all this stuff was going on with you constantly at, at all these bars. 
But how much of that time in that in that eight year period were you actually in Bloomington? Maybe a year and a half tops, and that's that's in a broken up, you know, that's broken up time. You know, I'm I'm going to say maybe a year and a half at the most in that in that period of time. Uh, we were actually living in Bloomington, and look, I was I was working, you know, I was doing uh, when we were there, and I think ninety ninety four, I was hanging drywall, and I was doing tree work. I was hanging drywall during the day, and I was doing tree work at night. You know, I was working five six days a week. The only times that we ever did go out to the bars was on the weekend, and that was that was not every weekend either. Believe me. At the time, you were married to was Tammy. Was your your ex wife's name? Yeah. You and you and Tammy were married and had a house full of kids. Yeah, we definitely had a house full of kids. Yeah. And and uh, you know, look, and like I've said before, I own the fact that you know I was in a lot of trouble growing up. And by by ninety three, really by ninety ninety one, I I I was still running around with the wrong crowd. But I, I'm telling you, man, I, I had finally figured out what my role was, you know, and, and I was trying to do the best I could to be a father to my kids and to work. And, I mean, I can give you a list of people who would who would actually know what I was doing and, and the life that I was living who could paint you a much different picture than these, these Bill Jesse-type people who I never even knew them. Let's go through that timeline, you know, that year and a half you were there. So did the Freedom Oil robbery, that occurred before Bill was killed, right? Yeah, it happened on uh, February 28th. It was the, the, the night that happened was my, uh, was my ex-wife's birthday. So that happened on February 28th. March 31st, Bill's killed. So let's start the clock there for when all these rumors are supposedly flying when you're in and out of these bars. When were you arrested for the Freedom Oil case? April of 91. So within, do you remember about how far into April it was? It's for a long time ago. I think it was like April 23rd, 24th, somewhere around there. So there, there's about three weeks because, you know, April 1st, I guess, starts the clock because Bill was killed in the night on the 31st yeah, of March. Three weeks. So, so you got three weeks you're out on the streets. After Bill's murder, yeah. and then you yeah. got arrested, taken into custody. You didn't bond out, right? Did you spend the whole summer in no, jail? No, I was no, I was in jail. I stayed in jail. I got arrested in April. I got out in, uh, I think, September. I think they dropped the charges, and I got out in September. Okay. Of uh, September, October of ninety-one. Okay, so you got about three weeks before you get arrested after Bill's murder. You're locked up until the fall, September, October, and then and then at some point you moved to Florida. How long was it after you got out of jail? Did you go to Florida? I know that we celebrated Thanksgiving of that year in in Florida. I, I'm I'm positive of that. So whatever the date is that I got out in either September, or October, we were in Florida by November. So you're talking another maybe you know six to eight weeks tops. Okay. And then, so the, so by fall of 91, you're not even in Bloomington anymore. No. And the whole, no. that whole summer after the murder, you're in jail. And then you go down to Florida. How long were you in Florida? We were in Florida till 
July of '93. I had, uh, I had, I think I told you earlier '94, but we were there until July of '93, and that's when we went back to Bloomington. Was in July. Okay, did you move back to Bloomington, or did you say that they actually arrested you for the Freedom Oil case while you were in Florida? No, no, we 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 went back to Florida. We we moved back to Florida. I mean, we moved back to Bloomington. In July, August, September, October, November, December, I think around December or January, somewhere around there, I went back to Florida. Okay. And uh, I ended up getting, at that point, I ended up getting arrested uh, for the obstruction of justice. And then they they actually, I got arrested for the obstruction of justice in like January. Uh, I got back to Illinois in like March. I bonded out, and I actually got a notice in the mail. They didn't actually arrest me, per se. Again, for the for the the freedom oil, I got a I got a, I got a letter in the mail that told me that I had to appear in court to answer to the charges of of armed robbery. That they were going to recharge me with it. They they didn't even they didn't arrest me. So that was as a time wise, you leave. In the fall of 91, you go to Florida. You're there till July of 93. You and the yep. family moved back to Bloomington. In the winter then of that year in 93, you went back to Florida again. Yeah, I went back and I was, I was arrested in January of 94. I bonded out uh, probably in March. I'm going to say March. And then April, May, June, July, August, September, seven months later... Uh, on October 31st, I I turned myself in and started serving uh, the three years for the obstruction of justice. Well, there was seven months there. So seven months you were there. So there was about six months. You were there for three weeks, and then six months, and then seven months there. You go to prison. You said you were sentenced to three years. You did about a year and a half, and then— Yeah, and I, I went back to Florida. I never went back to Bloomington. That was it. So when you got out of prison, you went right back to Florida? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's where you were at? When you found out that the, you were being indicted for Bill's murder, yeah, yeah. So between '91 and and like your, you know, my arrest. I mean, I think there's probably less than an 18 month window there that I was actually living in Bloomington. Well, yeah, and see, and I had assumed from the way you would... one of the many claims that I've heard from the people who believe that Jamie is guilty over and over again is that Jamie quote fled to Florida to avoid being charged with Bill's murder. But based on the information that I have available, the move to Florida wasn't even Jamie's idea. It was actually his wife's. Based on my conversation with Jamie and available documentation, we've learned a few things. For starters, Jamie has never met Bill Little or Bill Jesse, at least according to Jamie. And the only person to ever confront him about Bill's murder was Danny Hartley. And he really wasn't in town long enough to be dealing with any rumors about him killing Bill. Jamie was on the streets for about three weeks after Bill was murdered. During that time, it seems as though the public's attention was focused elsewhere. Then, out of the next eight years, he was incarcerated for two of them and lived in Florida for nearly five of them. But somehow, in his absence, Bloomington seems to have turned on Jamie. I heard it was Jamie, turned into I think it was Jamie, and then turned into it was Jamie. There's a whole lot of hearsay that we have to sort through. 
trial testimonies that were later recanted, and police statements that are later contradicted by affidavits. As we move forward with this case, things are going to get ugly for the investigators that went after Jamie Snow. I can promise you that. But in the meantime, I had one simple question for Jamie. What were you actually doing on that Easter Sunday, the day Bill was killed, that night? That night, I was sitting there with my kids and uh, their mother, and we were putting together golf tees. And, uh, you know, I had I had broke my hand, so I, I had a cast on my hand, and I, I, I wasn't able to do the drywall. And her mom worked for a company called Anthony Saludos in Bloomington, and, and they put together these... Um, they put together these promotional golf tee things, you know. It looks like a matchbook, and it's all folded up, and it's got, like, four golf tees and a divot. And, you know, we were getting, like, seven cents a piece for them. And, and we were sitting there putting together golf tees. You know, that's how we, we were living at the time. And we didn't do too bad, I'll tell you. We, we didn't do too bad. If you came over to my house, Bob, I'd give you a beer and a, a TV tray and some golf tees, and, and you'd put them together, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm serious. That's what I did. If you came to my house, I, I, I'll give you a beer and some golf tees, and that's that's what we were doing that night. Did the police ever talk to Tammy and ask her to confirm any of that? Yeah, they talked to her. Uh, I, I don't think they talked to her back in 1991. They didn't. I don't think they ever talked to her until uh, right before the grand jury was meeting. I think Dan Katz, he... Uh, tried to put some pressure on her. I know that there was a detective that talked to her dad at one time, and I don't know if he remembers it or not, but I know there was a detective, Detective Crow, early on had talked to her dad about it. And I, and I I know that her dad had told him, you know, you need to quit you need to quit telling people that because he didn't do it. Did your wife at the time, did Tammy confirm what you just told me to detectives when they did talk to her? When they first come to talk to her, she didn't want to talk to him. Uh-huh. You know, the very... Yeah, the first time she, the first time they came to talk to her in like I think '99, she was like, you know, I ain't got to talk to you, you know. So she didn't want to talk to him. But eventually, yeah, she, she, I don't know, I, I don't think she, she told him about the golf tees and stuff. But you know, she basically at the end, you know, later on, she did. Did she testify at your trial? She did. She did testify. And she testified to the fact that you were home with her that night. She testified that we were at home. There was a point in time when she was testifying to the grand jury, and her testimony will bear this out better. The state's attorney kept asking her the same thing over and over, so there's never a time during the day, whether it was in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening, that he never left your sight. And she's like, I'm not saying he didn't leave my sight. You know, he may have went, he may have went to the store and got, you know, to get some cigarettes or something, but, uh, you know, walked to the store to get some cigarettes or something, but, uh, you know, you I'm not saying... Left. I'm saying he never left my sight, and uh, man, they just they just zeroed in on that, and they were like, "So there was a time that he could have left your your sight, right?" And you know, I, I can explain it better to you the next time I talk to you, but okay. but yeah, they they just rather than waiting until next week to talk to Jamie again, I did some checking, and we're lucky enough to have a transcript from Tammy's grand jury testimony. Now, for those of you that don't understand how grand juries work, I'll give you a brief explainer before I read some of Tammy's testimony to you. Prosecutors will present a case to a grand jury in order to obtain an indictment against someone who they want to try for a crime. 
In theory, it's a fair way for an unbiased third party to decide if there's enough probable cause to move forward with the charges. In practice, however, well, New York State Chief Judge Saul Wachtler said it best. Quote, A grand jury would indict a ham sandwich if that's what you wanted. End quote. So, it's like this. Imagine a jury trial where the defense isn't allowed to speak or even attend. And that's how a grand jury works. There are literally no checks and balances in the indictment process. And oftentimes, the transcripts are even sealed, so the defense team can never even find out what was done or said. And when Tammy Snow was subpoenaed for Jamie's grand jury, she got worked over pretty good. I'm going to read to you some of the testimony from the beginning, when things are looking pretty good for Jamie. And then I'll share the end of her testimony, where it falls apart. Now keep in mind that the first time anyone ever asked Tammy where Jamie was in the night Bill was killed was eight years later. Prosecutor Tina Griffin began the examination by asking Tammy who she's married to. Tammy explains that she's still technically married to Jamie, but they're separated. In fact, Jamie was living in Florida at the time, and Tammy was living in Bloomington with the kids. Apparently, they were both living at Florida, and then Tammy left to move back to Illinois, and Jamie had stayed there. This is also where we learn why Jamie moved to Florida after he was released from jail in the fall of 91. See, Tammy's parents divorced when she was young. Her mother stayed in Bloomington, and her dad moved to Florida. And evidently, it wasn't Jamie he was being harassed by rumors. It was actually Tammy. And Tammy testified that it was her idea to move down to Florida. She was tired of the rumors and thought it would be better for her and her whole family to get a new start down in Florida. This full transcript is posted on her website if you want to read it. And in the transcript, you'll learn about the Susan Claycomb connection, Jamie's co-defendant, and get some clues as to what the state's case is going to be at trial. Susan is Tammy's brother's wife, so her sister-in-law. And as far as the foreshadowing for trial, the DA is asking Tammy a lot of questions about things that she or Jamie supposedly said to people about Bill's murder. We're going to get to all that, but for now, let's focus in on Jamie's alibi. I'll read this part directly from the transcript. Griffin, you're familiar with the fact that on March 31st, 1991, which was Easter Sunday, there was an armed robbery shooting at the Clark gas station on Empire in Bloomington in which William Little was killed. Tammy, yep. Griffin, do you know where you were on March 31st, 1991? At my mom's. Where was that? In Park City South. She lived in a different trailer than you were living at the time? Right. When did you get to your mom's that day? When did I get there? I have no idea. I couldn't tell you what time I got there. Usually we would get up on Easter and then we'd go there after. You know, the Easter thing at home and eat dinner and stuff. I couldn't tell you a time. When you say eat dinner, are you talking about the noon meal versus the evening meal or what are you talking about? Probably two or three, but we usually all, my family all goes there, you know? So when you say you were at your mom's on that day, do you remember being at your mom's that day or are you saying that every Easter that's what you usually do? No, actually, I didn't remember till I talked to the detective, and he was telling me I had to remember. So we got some pictures out, and that was my son's first Easter, and my sister's little boy, his first Easter. That's when I started, you know, remembering back to where I was at. If somebody just came up and asked me, you know, where was you at 10 years ago, you know, I couldn't tell you. But we went and got pictures out and stuff, and, you know, that's how I know I went to my mom's that Easter, which I do every Easter, so that's not like... Griffin interrupts. Do you know when you left there? No. You know if it was still dark out or light out or what time? 
Nope. What time did your kids usually go to bed at that time? Probably being Easter and being up all morning, probably early, 8 or 9. Did they go to bed at your house or your mom's house? My house. Do you know where Jamie was on March 31st, 1991? With us. When was he there? He was at my mom's and he was at home. Did he go home with you? Uh Uh-huh. And go home with the kids then? Uh Uh-huh. He was there when the kids went to bed? Yep. Now, it's worth noting here that this is Jamie's ex-wife, or soon-to-be ex-wife. She had every opportunity to burn him, and yet she tells the grand jury that Jamie was home with her and the kids that night. At this point in the transcript, it seems like his alibi is pretty cut and dry. It sounds like Tammy's pretty easily able to recall the day by looking at those old pictures. Since it was her son's first birthday, and her son was a baby in the pictures, and he was born in January, it seems pretty clear that that was it. That was the night Bill was killed. And reading through the testimony, at this point, it feels like the state's case is just about dead in the water. Until a Mr. Reynard steps up to ask a few more questions. It doesn't actually say in the transcript, but I believe Reynard is another prosecutor. In any case, he caught something in Tammy's testimony that brought Jamie's entire alibi crumbling down. Tammy testified that she knew it was Easter of 91 when she, Jamie, and the kids were at her mother's house during the day and home during the evening. And she was sure of the year because, like I said, it was her son's first Easter. But there's just one problem. Jamie Jr. was born in January of 1990, not 91. From the transcript. Reynard, I know this is a long time ago and you're trying to remember... Now, you said that the reason why you remember this year, 1991, is because it was your son and your sister's son's first Easter, right? Right. My question is, I believe Susan, she had said that she had asked you when your son's birthday was, and you said January of 1990. Right. So, wouldn't March of 1990 been the first Easter? Because I'm thinking, I know you're trying to remember... Are you remembering that this was the 1990 instead of 1991? Because if you think the first Easter for your kid and her kid was in March of that year, that was 1990, not 1991. That would have been the first Easter. Then a question by another juror. How old was your son in those pictures? You have pictures of your son? Yeah. How old was he? He was a baby. Even though Tammy Snow still maintained that her husband was home with her and the kids on that Easter Sunday, the night Bill Little was murdered, she lost all credibility in front of the grand jury, and they voted to indict Jamie. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. 
you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been... Truth and Justice.